morning. I'm Jared Clary, and I'm on staff here as one of the pastors. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 12. So if you've got your Bible, then you can go to Luke chapter 12. I'm glad that you all braved the, the cold and the, the drizzle that's happening out there. And so we pray that you'll have a safe return home. For those of you that are watching online, we are so glad that you're joining us. We're thankful for the technology that allows us to, to be able to say, be safe, and but yet still gather with the body and be encouraged. And so we're so glad that you're joining us. We are in Luke chapter 12, and Tracy gave me this passage to preach, and I'm thankful for that. And then I read the passage, and I said, now I know why. <laughs> so this morning, there is a heaviness to this text. And as I was looking at it, and I was, I was like, how do I make all of this make sense? There's a commentary, Christ-centered exposition, um, uh, a beloved guy named Thabiti wrote that, and th this outline is really pulled a lot from that commentary, and I think it was just super helpful for saying, how can you make sense of all of this? What is Jesus actually doing in this text? And so let me set that up for us as we jump into this text, that it's important for us to realize that as Luke is recording this, he's writing all these things down so that we can have confidence, we can't forget that. The whole purpose for why he's writing this letter, which would have been read pretty in a short amount of time, is that he wants us to have confidence. He wants us to know and be certain of who Christ is and what he came to do, that our faith would be solid and sure. And so he's written it for that purpose. And so he's recorded names and dates and people and places and things like that. And we're going to see some of that in our text. But when we got to chapter 9, then there was a key text that said that Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem. And, and so we know, if you've read the scripture, that Jerusalem is the place where Jesus was going to go and he was going to lay his life down. And fulfill the promise of one who would redeem people. Who would pay for the sins. Who would reconcile mankind back to God. Through the sacrifice of his, his own blood. That he would satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. And so that's going to happen in Jerusalem. And Jesus knows that. And so he set his face to Jerusalem. And so as he's going to Jerusalem. Then he's. He's calling people and saying, come and follow me, and this is what it looks like to follow me, that you've got to take up your cross. And so he lays out the cost of what it looks like to follow him. He's laying out what it is to be his disciple. And so we get to this text, and Jesus has just in the earlier verses said, hey, everyone is going to be held accountable for what they know, for what they do. And that there's an audit coming, as Tracy told us. And we don't know when it's going to come. But there is an audit coming where we will all be held accountable for what we do with Jesus in this life. That what you do with Jesus and how you live will determine eternity. That's the decision that we have to make. And so as we get to our text, let's look at it. Chapter 12, verse 49. I want to read this text, and then we'll go back and unpack it. Jesus says this in verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. 
I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you pay the very last penny. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it. And put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Let's pray. God, as we open up your word and we look at this text, God, would you speak to us? Lord, would you confront us with the truth of your word, with the truth of your ways? God, would you convict our hearts that our lives might look like you desire. Lord, that our ways might follow the ways that you have for us. God, that we might be a light to this city, that we might be hope to those friends and family. God, would you use us? Would you work through us? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what do we do with this text, right? So, There's a lot of different parts, and I think what's the most helpful is that what Jesus is doing here is he's giving five struggles that are common to everyday life. Five struggles that we will face in life. And he's talking to his disciples, but he's also talking to the crowds, and that's some of the confusion in this is, who exactly is he talking to? And so he kind of is talking to both. And as he talks about these five struggles that we will face in life, then he's doing two different things. One, he's calling people to repent from them. But he's also telling his disciples, hey, don't be discouraged. Don't be overcome. Don't be overwhelmed to unfaithfulness. Because these are common. 
These are struggles that we as followers of Christ will face. So don't be overwhelmed or overcome when we face them. Right? I think there's a, a sentiment today that if you follow Jesus, your life is good. Your life is better. And there's truth to that. God's ways are always better. God's ways are always best. But does that mean that we won't face struggles? That we won't face trials? Absolutely not. This life that we live and what Jesus is telling these disciples is there will be very hard struggles that you will face. Don't be overcome by them. There's an audit coming. Don't be overwhelmed to unfaithfulness. Stay faithful. And so let's look at these five struggles. The first one comes in verses 49 through 53. Let's look at that. Jesus is saying, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Right? So Jesus right here, what he's saying is, is he's saying, hey, there's a judgment coming. That's this, this reference to casting fire on the earth. That there is a judgment coming that his presence, his kingdom, ushers in a judgment that you are either with Jesus or you are against him. That there is a fire being kindled. That when he returns, this sweeping judgment is going to burn up everything that is not pure. He says, oh, that we're already kindled. His judgment is coming and he has a baptism to be baptized with. This baptism of his death that will ultimately draw the line in the sand. Of will you trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Or will you pay for those sins when you stand in front of God? And so he says his distress is great until it's accomplished. But what is the practical outworking of that? That Jesus' kingdom has come and there's a line drawn in the sand. He says this, do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? Jesus says when a line is drawn in the sand... It brings about division. It doesn't bring about peace when you have to choose, right? You, you walk in and you're like, all right, king cake from down south or king cake from up north, which is better? There's a line drawn in the sand, right? You can't have peace, right? Super Bowl, we just watched it. You can't have peace, right? You got to choose a side. And that's what Jesus is saying here is that with his kingdom coming, with him ushering in his kingdom, there is a line drawn in the sand. You have to choose a side. Are you with Jesus or are you against him? Well, what practically does that do to us? Well, it brings about division. For from now on, I tell you, in one house there will be five divided against three and three against two. Verse 53, they will be divided Look at how, how far this division goes. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This line drawn in the sand will bring about division, distress among relationships at the deepest level. Now, some of you may have faced this, but this may be hard for some of us to recognize, but, but think about the encouragement that Jesus gives in this. 
If you're living in one of the top 50 countries that open doors says are the most persecuted countries in the world, and you choose to follow Jesus, and because of that decision to choose to follow Jesus, to trust in him as your Lord and Savior, you now have a bounty on your head from your own family. Think about the encouragement that Jesus says, hey, it's coming, this struggle, this distress that you will feel, I'm telling you about it ahead of time so that when you face it, you won't be overcome. Because don't we have the sentimentality that I thought Jesus was going to make my life better. I thought Jesus was going to make my life easier. And now there's a bounty on your head from your father who is seeking to kill you because you have chosen to follow Jesus? This is a reality in the world. This is a reality among our brothers and sisters in Christ who live in many, many, many countries. But maybe you've experienced it in a little bit of the same way. Maybe you were raised in a certain way, and for you to part ways with your upbringing to say, no, I'm following Jesus, and I'm following the way that he calls me to live, that your family shames you. Maybe they call you the holy roller. Maybe you're the God squad. Oh, you're different from us. Oh, you think you're better than us. There's division and distress that you don't eagerly anticipate family gatherings because you go, ah, I just don't look forward to that, to the division, to the distress that comes from following Jesus. But here it is. Jesus tells you this ahead of time so that you won't despair, so that you will remain faithful. We have to live in light of the audit that's coming. Our temptation would be because of this distress, because of this despair, to say it's not worth it, right? Like, it's not worth it. But Jesus reminds us there's an audit coming. Don't be found unfaithful. We move to our next struggle, and we see that the next one is hypocrisy. That we will face hypocrisy. Look at verse 54. He says, He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower's coming, and it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? The second struggle that we will face is hypocrisy. I'm sure that we've all heard this, right? I don't go to church because it's full of a bunch of hypocrites. Do you not go to McDonald's because they got hypocrites there too, right? Right? Isn't that the reality? Like, there's hypocrites everywhere. And we can all raise our hand and say we've all been a hypocrite. So what exactly is Jesus saying here? Jesus is giving a warning. He's ushering a warning to the people who can read the times, right? The weathermen of the day. You see a, a wind blowing, and you go, it's going to rain. You see the wind blowing this way, and you go, it's going to be hot. He's like, this is normal, common sense things, right? That we can look at things and go, oh, I know what's coming next. And Jesus is calling out the hypocrisy here, which... 
it's helpful to understand what is this hypocrisy. Well, this hypocrisy is not like, oh, you're saying something different. This is an, a willful ignorance. Catch this. A willful ignorance that they know what is coming and they're choosing to not believe it. The hypocrisy that Jesus is calling out is he's saying, you know that the kingdom is coming. You know what I'm ushering in. And yet you're choosing willful ignorance. Ignorance is not bliss. I heard it said one time that that we will be held accountable for the things which we heard and the things which we should have heard had we been listening. The things which we should have heard if we would have been listening, right? It's the age-old child that goes, la, 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 la. Right? They're still held accountable. We are still held accountable for the reality that the kingdom of God is coming and that there will be an audit. And Jesus will say, those who are faithful, enter in. Those who have rebelled against me, depart. That there is a willful ignorance that Jesus calls out in this text and says, you hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Let me, let me bring this forward for you a little bit. If the Lord's convicting your heart of something, if there's a conviction from the Holy Spirit that is, is at work in you, and you go, mm, nope, not going to do it. This is what he's talking about. I remember having a conversation with one of my college buddies, and he came into our room, and, and he said, guys, I need some help. I need some advice. So we sat down for about an hour and a half, and we talked to him about all of this, and he was like, all right. I know what I need to do. I'm just not going to do it. You hypocrite, right? That's what Jesus is saying. Like, you want this, and then when the Holy Spirit convicts your heart, when the Holy Spirit's leading you, either because of the cost, or because of you love your sin, or because you don't want to actually follow through, then we go, no. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying, you hypocrites, you unfaithful. You'll give an account for that. Struggle number three that we will face is strife. Look at verse 57. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an offer, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. What in the world is Jesus putting this in there for, right? It seems like we're just hodgepodging all over the place. We've talked about family relational distress. We've talked about the hypocrisy that, that we see. And now he's talking about this strife that among those in the church... That's kind of the analogy here. He's like, among believers, why do you not judge for yourself what's right? He's like, you guys can't figure this out? You guys can't settle this? You don't know what's right? Yet, instead of working this out, instead of settling this, what do you do? You go, well, I'm taking you to jail. 
Think about it like this. Within Norris Ferry, members have some angst with each other. Some business deals gone bad. Something happens. And, and w- instead of working it out with each other, what happens? We go, I'm taking you to court. I'm going to drag you before the judge. And what is Jesus saying? He's like, do you guys not know what's right? You guys can't judge for yourselves? But here's the reality that when you drag each other before court, then you're going to be judged by the judge, and the judge is going to hand you over to the officer, and the officer is going to put you in prison. And then look at verse 59. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. There's a reference here to a full settlement of all punishment until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is bringing forward this account of that he will judge the earth, that he will judge right and wrong. And there's a a reference right here that he says, and I will judge to the fullest extent. You guys are dragging each other to court. When there's so much more to be done. You guys are so focused on this aspect of monetary things. And don't you know that life is so much more than possessions? Right? Remember last week? That your life is so much more than possessions. And yet you're dragging each other to court over pennies? Let me ask it like this. When Jesus returns, do you want to be sitting in court with one of the other followers of Christ? Saying, you owe me. Is that how you want Jesus to find you? Is that what faithfulness looks like? He's going to say, no. No, life is so much more. The kingdom of God is coming. Don't be bogged down in this stuff. Don't be bogged down going, oh, I'm taking you to court because you wronged me. He goes, no, what does faithfulness look like? So much more than this. Judge between yourselves what's right and wrong. Now, I think that this one grinds against us, right? Because we've got the internal lawyer, if I'm honest, that I go, well, yeah, but don't, don't sometimes we, but Jesus, like, really? Like, you don't know what they've done to me. Don't they need some accountability? I think for us, this one really, we struggle with it. Because we have an idea of justice that we want. We want to appeal to justice that I'm right and they're wrong, so make them pay. Right? Anybody else like that? Just me? But Jesus is cutting through all of that stuff and he's going at our heart. And he goes, why do you think that you're in such a lofty position to judge what is right and wrong? That's his question, right? And why do you not judge for yourselves what's right? We think we're in this lofty position that we have done no wrong, and yet I can look down at them and say, you've done wrong, you owe me, and I'm going to take you to court because I can prove it. And that's why Jesus is appealing, and he says, oh, but I'm the greater judge. 
Oh, I'm the greater judge. And when you drag each other into court over these things, and your pride to say, I'm right and I can make you pay, Jesus says, I am the final judge, and you will pay for every penny. Now, if we're good Bible readers and we know the scripture, then we know to whom has been forgiven much, we forgive much. Right? That to the extent that we have been forgiven by God, when we grasp the reality that, oh, my sins, the many, he's forgiven me, then we'll extend that to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, is it going to be costly? For sure. But remember the cost that Jesus said? If anyone wishes to come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. What are pennies compared to laying our life down? Jesus is calling us to so much more. He says, don't be overwhelmed. Don't be overcome. Don't be goaded into unfaithfulness over pennies. The next struggle that we will see is in verse 1 of chapter 13. Now, I want to camp out just a little bit right here because this one, I think, is, is really hard for us as well. He says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, think about this. This is disaster upon disaster. This is tragic. Jesus has been teaching, and there's few people there, and they're like, Jesus, did you hear about the tragedy? Pilate, this wicked dude, murdered these Christians. And then he mixed their blood with the blood of the sacrifices to offer sacrifice to his other gods. How wicked. Like, this dude is wicked. And they're like, Jesus, what do we do with that? Jesus, like, get Pilate. He's bad. And look at Jesus' response. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What? Jesus, what? Like, don't you think Pilate's bad? Don't you think that, that you ought to curse him? Don't you think we ought to rise up against him and overthrow him? Don't you think, like, what? Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The people here were wanting Jesus to affirm what they saw. Their own sense of justice. Their own sense of morality. But Jesus is going to cut through all of that. And he says, that's, that's above your pay grade. What God does with Pilate is on God. But there is something for you right here. 
There is a reality and a sobering effect for you right here that unless you repent and believe, you will perish just like they have perished. That we all will perish one day. 100% of us will all die someday. And when we die, we will give an account. Now, we don't know when. We don't know where. Jesus has already kind of mentioned this, that if, if you know when the thief's coming, then you prepare for it. But that's the reality. You don't know when the thief's coming. And just like that, you don't know when you will give an account for your life. But Jesus cuts through this reality of this tragedy that they faced, this disaster that they faced. And he says, instead of letting that disaster derail you from faithfulness, instead of letting that disaster be what prevents you from following Christ, instead of letting that disaster be your justification, he goes right at their heart. He says, there's, there's a reality here for you that unless you repent, you will perish just as they have perished. Man, that's sobering. Jesus draws a line in the sand for every one of us. If you're here today, the warning is for you. Come to Jesus. You don't know when you will give an account. These Galileans who were murdered by Pilate, they did not know when they would give an account, when they would perish. But the call is to repent. The call is to believe. Jesus goes on and he says, see, there's, there's these wicked people. But then he goes on and he makes it one step further. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? This is natural disaster, right? This is probably in Jerusalem. They were rebuilding these towers. They were rebuilding the walls. They were rebuilding the city. And, and while construction's going on, then this tower falls and it kills 18 people. This is a disaster. And we have the sentimentality that we go, that's terrible. That's awful. And it is. But there's a sober warning for all of us. Every time we see any disaster, any natural disaster, that we go, am I right with Jesus? Are you right with Jesus? I, I just, we used to live in Fort Worth, and I just saw the wreck that happened because of the, the weather. It's tragic. Absolutely tragic disaster. That people died in that pileup of 90 to 100 cars. And I think what Jesus would say is he was like, do you think they were more wicked than you? Do you think those who passed away in that tragic disaster were more wicked than you? Or more wicked than me? Was it because of their evil sin that they died? He goes, no. But there's a reality for you and me. Are you right with Jesus? If it was your day to give an account, are you right with him? This is sobering, but it's so hopeful at the same time. Because the offer of Jesus 
is to come. Let anyone who wants to come, come and follow him. That Jesus extends the offer to be right with him to anyone. You have not sinned too much for Jesus' forgiveness. You are not more wicked than he can wash away. Your past, whatever it is, Jesus can forgive it. Jesus can make you new. Jesus can clothe you in his righteousness. Just come. How do you come? Well, it starts right how he says, repent. That you confess, Jesus, I've messed up. I've tried to do my own things. I've rebelled against you. With the line drawn in the sand, I've chosen to be in opposition. And I know that, but I want to be on your team. Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus, I trust in you that only because of you can I be made right. That's how it goes. There's no magical words. There's no magical prayer. It's just you confessing. It's you repenting. Repenting is a turning. It's admitting what you've done and turning around and going the other way. Admit it and quit it. Come back to Jesus. There's no greater time than today. The roads are slick out there. And we don't know what's going to happen. If you don't know Jesus, would you trust him today? Would you do that and talk to one of us? This is exactly what he's saying right here. That we will all give an account and we don't know when. And there's disaster and tragedy. But in each one of those, there is a call for us to repent. There is a call for us to come to Jesus. But I think this is also hopeful for us because when we as believers see tragedy in this mass amount, we oftentimes doubt God's goodness. We oftentimes think that, well, why? And Jesus tells us right here, just as he's telling his followers, disaster is going to happen. Don't let it overwhelm you to unfaithfulness. Don't let it overwhelm you to unfruitfulness. We have a call to believe, to repent, to believe, and to come to Jesus. Let's look at this fifth struggle that we will face. We've seen that we'll struggle from distress. We saw that we'll struggle from hypocrisy, that we'll struggle with strife. We'll struggle with disaster. And then lastly, we see that we will struggle with fruitlessness. This is one of my favorite parables in all the scripture because I love, I just love what Jesus is saying here to us. He says this, and he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Right Now, Jesus is telling this parable, and so this would have been common practice for the day, that when, he plant, when a, a gardener plants a tree, a fig tree especially, he's planting it there for a purpose. He's not planting it there for decorative purposes. He's planting it there to get fruit. Fig trees take up a lot of nutrients from the ground. They're big. This fig tree was taking up a lot of ground, in, but it was worth it because of the fruit which it would produce. 
And so, this is a long-term investment. For three years now, he's come seeking fruit. No fruit. 365 days later, no fruit. 365 days later, no fruit. Three years he's waited for fruit. But some would even say that this was probably closer to, to six or seven years because he wouldn't have come seeking the fruit until it had been established. So for a long time, he's been going, got any fruit? No. Got any fruit? No. Got any fruit? No. So then finally he goes, okay, this thing's not going to produce fruit. This is a bad tree. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Like, what's its purpose? I don't need decorations. What's its purpose if it's not going to bear fruit? And he answered, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. That there is a reality of fruitlessness that is produced in the lives of some people. And that is discouraging. I don't know if you've ever been discipling someone and you've been hoping that they would bear some sort of spiritual fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You're like, please, anything. And you come and you're like, yes, this is the year they're going to bear some fruit. You're like, Nothing. Same old, same old. So you come back again next year. They claim to be believers. They claim to be followers of Christ. They claim to be Christians. You come back the next year and you're like, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, anything? Nada. And again another year. Nada. So you're like, What's the point? They're not a Christian. They're not a follower of Jesus. There's no fruit in their life. I've, I've been looking for three years for any fruit. Nothing. But look at what Jesus does, right? Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put manure. What does that mean? What is Jesus talking about? The tree ought to bear fruit. We as Christians ought to bear fruit that we are followers of Christ. But you know what happens? Sometimes there's fruitlessness. And you're looking and there's nothing. But look at the grace of God that he says, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put manure. What is that? That's intense discipleship. That's saying, hey, let me help you look more like Jesus. Let me help you grow in your walk with God. Let me teach you how to read the Bible. Let me teach you what God's word calls us to. Let me help you repent of sin. Let me help you follow Jesus that you would bear fruit. Let me encourage it. Let me foster your growth. Have you ever done that with somebody that... There was no fruit? Or did you just go, they're obviously not a Christian? Or have you leaned in and said, let me help it grow? Maybe you're the fruitless one. 
Maybe you need someone to lean in. I love it. In student ministry for seven years, it was like, any fruit? Any fruit? Any fruit? And then all of a sudden, sometimes they go off to college, and you're like, what? There's fruit. Right? They needed someone else to lean in. Help foster growth. Help foster fruit. The encouragement for us in this is that there will be seasons of fruitlessness in your life probably where you need someone to lean in and help foster that. And God is gracious and he's merciful to say, let it alone another year. Give it another season to grow fruit. But there's also going to be fruitlessness in those around you where you get to be the one to lean in and say, let me help foster some fruit in their life. But don't miss this. If it bears fruit, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. We haven't left the reality that we will all give an account. We haven't left the reality that there is an audit coming. And if your life produces no fruit, it will be cut down. This text is pretty sobering for all of us. I hope that you felt the weight of that as Jesus has challenged us that we will face these struggles. Some of us are in these struggles. Don't be overcome by these struggles. Let me remind us that this is what Jesus started with. Who then is the faithful and wise manager who his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. We will face struggles. We will face distress, hypocrisy, strife, disaster, and fruitlessness. Don't let those things overcome you to where you are fruitless. You're going to face them. You know it ahead of time. Live in community and bear fruit of what God has called us to. Let me pray for us. God, as we unpack that text, there's so many challenges for us. So many places where I see my own life and I see times where I've struggled or I see times where I've faced these things. Lord, and, and oftentimes I just confess that, that they overwhelmed me. They discouraged me to the point of hopelessness. They, they brought destruction in my life. God, and I just confess that, that they overwhelmed me. Instead of leaning into your promises, I focused on the disasters around me. God, I pray that through knowing these things, knowing that we will face these things, Lord, that you would encourage us. That just like that text that Granger read for us, that our sure and steady anchor for our soul would be in Christ. God, I pray if there's anyone here hearing that hasn't trusted in you, Lord, that they would do that today. That the reality of an audit that's coming where they will give an account 
for their life would weigh heavy on them. Lord, that your spirit would convict them of their sin, that they would confess that, that they would repent, and that they would come to you. Lord, help us to live fruitful lives that we would be servants following after you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. 